Well, it certainly is a strange time in history. It's a hard time. You might find it a worrisome time. Uh, I understand. I'm convinced you will probably someday be telling your children and your grandchildren about this season. Much like uh, there's another generation learning about 9-11, much as many of you who have served are the ones who need to tell the stories of the, uh, the major wars maybe you've been a part of. These are historic times, but I'm convinced that these will also be times that you will remember how God was faithful. I think this will be times when you will look back and say, God taught me something through that experience that I could never have learned maybe any other way. Well, I'm here in the, our, our worship center. Just a few of the worship team members are here. It's a new experience for me, of course, too. We've always said a church is people, not a building. And so we have to practice what we preach here today. And uh, you are there. I'm here. You're in your living room. I'm in a mostly em- empty uh, uh, worship center. But we are the church Occasionally through the years after a service, I've had somebody come up to me and uh, apologize for falling asleep during the service, as if I maybe saw them. Um, You don't need to apologize this morning. Last week as we entered this global health situation, we uh, looked in our uh, time of study together at Psalm 46. God is a refuge and a strength and an ever-present help in time of trouble. And if that's the word of encouragement you need today, I'd encourage you to go back and maybe look at that, uh, view that message on our church Facebook or church website. You can access that. But today I'd like us to return to our ongoing study in the New Testament book of Colossians. Colossians. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, so find a Bible, find a Bible app. Um, If you would like to see the outline that we're following today, I think that's listed there below uh, my picture in the screen there, or you can access it from a link in the uh, comments. This is a passage about relationships, and I think it's very timely because this kind of a season, any change or adjustment really causes stress on our relationships. It could be that your relationships are stressed because the uh, the kids are all home and you're together all the time or you're spending a whole lot more time with your spouse than you're used to. It could be that your relationships are stressed because you or someone you know is in disagreement about really what is going on. But I trust that you will see this as a time to enhance and grow your relationships. And I think this passage tells us what we need to know that makes relationships work. And if there was a one-word summary, what makes relationships work is grace. Grace. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. He's describing grace. 
And basically, he's describing a progression that if we grasp God's grace to us, we will show God's grace to others. It's seen, this comparison or this contrast, uh, this process is seen in each verse. Verse 12, the first couple words or phrases are about God's grace to us. God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved. That's how he sees us. So what do we do? We need to show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If we grasp God's grace for us, we will show God's grace to others. Therefore, just just picture Paul writing this. He's writing to the Colossian church, people he had actually never met, about A.D. 60. There's, There's a graciousness to how he sees God God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved. You see, that is how God saw Paul. That is how God sees those who put their faith in him. We are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. What's remarkable is to hear the attitude of Paul at a time when, do you know the setting of the book of Colossians? At a time when he is really in the midst of a two-year quarantine. Okay? It was called prison. But you see, the way they often did prison at that time, and he's in Rome awaiting trial because of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what he was going through was a house arrest. Acts 28 verse 30 says how he was confined to a single rented house for two years. In the book of Philippians, another letter he wrote during that same season It describes how he was guarded by the Praetorian Guard, which history suggests was a a rotation of some four soldiers who had shifts throughout the day to watch him and, and make sure he didn't leave this house. It's pretty serious quarantine. And yet we find both in his attitude here and we find, as he wrote the book of Philippians, this attitude of joy just oozing out of him. How can you have that kind of a great attitude under quarantine, in prison in his case, unjustly imprisoned. It was because of how he knew God saw him. God sees me, Paul says. God sees you as a believer in Christ, as chosen, holy, and dearly loved. That makes all the difference in our relationships. If we see ourselves as chosen, holy and dearly loved by God, and grasp that kind of grace, we show grace to others. The definition of grace is basically this, undeserved kindness. We deserve something else, but we got God's grace. So this is really imploring us to give people the gift of grace like God gave it to us. First term, we'll just walk our way through these three verses today. Chosen. Chosen refers to the special relationship that God has with those who put their faith in him, in Christ whom he sent. Uh, Ephesians 1 tells us how before God even created the world, he knew about us, he chose us, he chose to save us, he chose to have his eye upon us because God is eternal in his nature He knew everything. He he caused everything. 
So, so while we are in the midst of something like this, we, we almost wonder about our health, we wonder about uh, our finances. And yet God knows all those things. Most importantly, God knows you, and he knows you personally, and he wants to draw you into a relationship with himself so that you are a part of his family. How do you become part of his family? The next term hints at that. The word holy. You are chosen and you are holy. Holy means perfect. I mean, how how can Paul, talking to Colossian Christians he doesn't even know personally, call them holy? It's because he knew the testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. The Colossian Christians, just like you and me, were sinners. They made mistakes. But we have been studying throughout the book of Colossians these last couple of months and understanding that when we put our faith in Christ, the one who paid for our sin, we are declared holy. Our sin was punished on the cross in the person of Jesus. And when God poured out his wrath on Christ, Christ absorbed our penalty. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that we are made righteous through faith in Christ. So the reason he calls us holy is because in heaven, that's how our account looks. That no matter what we have done, past sin, present sin, any sin will ever sin, if we put our faith in Christ, our account already reads holy in heaven. Our slate is clean. Do you see how that frees you from condemnation, frees you from guilt, frees you from shame? And as a result, in that kind of freedom, you are free to give other people grace in those important relationships in your life. All starts with knowing the grace of God, experiencing it, and then we can dispense it to others. Showing grace is radically opposite of our selfish, sinful nature. That's just not who we are. We're self-centered to the bone, essentially, showing grace often will violate our sense of justice. I don't know. They really deserve this. Showing grace goes against the grain of the way we so often manipulate people with guilt. You know, if we can put them down and make them do something or bring shame on them. Showing grace is impossible unless you've experienced it from God himself. But if you've put your faith in Christ, you, your account is already holy. Maybe you're a believer in Christ and you've known that for many years, that you're, you're forgiven, you're going to heaven. But you've struggled with this grace thing in, in daily life and personal relationships. Sometimes grace has been forgotten. Sometimes grace has been ignored. Sometimes we as Christians are guilty of not showing grace to others. And so we really don't get it. We've experienced grace. We've experienced rather judgment and condemnation even from one another. And so we forget what grace really is. Clearly, we cannot imitate the world which is selfish and judgmental, but sometimes we have to be careful not to imitate believers if they've been selfish or judgmental. We have to imitate Jesus Christ. The only one who, in his completely unselfish act on the cross, is able to show us complete grace. We are chosen, special, part of his family. We are holy. Our slate is clean. And then the third statement describing his grace to us, is that we are dearly loved, dearly loved 
means we're the object of his affection and not because we deserve it. Not because he just likes us because we're so great, but rather he dearly loves us with a, a personal sense. So we know that grace is factual. We've trusted in Christ. We receive his grace uh, and eternal life. But do we realize it's also personal that he wants our best for us all the time? Just like you as a parent, if you're a parent, you know, no matter what your ch- child has done or what they're doing, or you still have this in, in, inborn thing of, I just want the best for them. He always wants the best for us. We are dearly loved. So are you saturated with the grace of God? Chosen, holy, dearly loved. Because if you are saturated with his love, it will leak. <laughs> It'll flow from you to others. And there's this, there's this continual refreshing that will come out of you because you've experienced it from God. So that's why now, second half of the verse, he says, so clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Clothe yourself. It's a great metaphor to use here. Our clothing reflects who we are or who we want to be seen as, at least for the moment, right? So if you want to be seen as fashionable, you wear what you think is fashionable. If you want to see yourself, you want to be seen as comfortable, you wear what's comfortable. If you want to be identified as a fan of a certain Wisconsin sports team, you'll wear that jersey or that, that, that sweatshirt. And sports will come back. But your, your clothes reflect you. And likewise, we are to clothe ourselves with these five characteristics because they reveal that we are grace-filled. And so it's like you can tell it. In these obvious ways, you, you will be seen with your compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Let's think through those five terms. Compassion. Compassion is basically a sensitivity and, uh, if you will, the ability or the willingness to enter into the feelings of somebody else. It's a very Christ-like trait because Christ showed compassion. You saw it in the way he, he treated people. If you are reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in your Bibles, uh, it, compassion is what took him to the cross. Compassion is how he treats us now. Hebrews 4.15 says that he understands our temptation because he lived among us. Though he never sinned, he understands the power of temptation. He had compassion. A lot of people need compassion right now. Um, a lot of people fearful. Maybe, maybe you're one of the less fearful ones. Good for you. There are people very fearful. And they need you to understand that they need your compassion. Second word, kindness. Very similar. There's a lot of overlap in grace characteristics. Kindness is sympathy. It's, it's a, a sweetness of attitude. It really does matter how we come across. It's amazing how much grace you can communicate just by your facial expression, a smile. Um, yesterday I had to get some groceries, and I, as, I, as I looked around a little bit, there's a particular seriousness on a lot of faces right now. Kind of like, you know, got, got to take care of my needs and, and, and get home and be safe. We've, need, we've needed grace and smiles more than ever right now. When I picture Christ on earth, I, I picture him as kind. 
in a very powerful, manly kind of way, but kind. He, he, he would take the children and, 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 and hold them, speak warmly to those who, who were sick and caring, smile. If, if, there's, if there's a grace-filling happening in you that you are focused on God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's kindness that you don't deserve, it, it'll get projected on the screen of your face. What's inside is, is what others will experience. Uh, good cookies have good ingredients, real chocolate chips. Genuine smiles are going to come from the inside. Compassion, kindness. Thirdly, humility. Humility. Humility is a grace-based view of yourself. That is, humility is when you see yourself as needing grace. Do you see the transparency in that? You have to, you have to acknowledge, I have failures, and as a result, I need grace, and that is what creates a humility. You, you always often realize when someone's either humble or arrogant or kind of where they are on that, on that scale. A humble person is a person who apologizes. The reason they are free to apologize is because they acknowledge their own failures. And when we are, have, a, have, a, have a posture towards God of understanding, oh, I have so many failures, and yet God, by your grace, you have poured out your kindness to me through Jesus Christ. Having, having cleared that with him, do you realize how that clears us with one another? And we can say, yeah, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Practice forgiveness. You'll, you'll probably have opportunity as we're, you're kind of pressed together with the family and those kind of things. Or it could even be that you're, you're all alone and, and you're spending more time thinking about relationships. But think about the grace of God for you and how can you show kindness and humility towards others. The fourth term is gentleness. Gentleness is best, I think, understood by its opposite, and that means harsh, mean. Um, grace when other people are angry at you. I'm going to share a verse with you from um, the wisest man that ever lived. King Solomon of the Old Testament wrote uh, the Proverbs. He talks about the power of gentleness. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So, we are the one, by our reaction, so the other person's angry at us, but we, by our reaction to that, can either stir the pot or calm it. It even works, uh, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, when the person angry at you is somehow your boss or ruler, he's over you. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Uh, Did you ever notice how emotionally we try to match the person who's angry with us? As if we're we're feeling angry, anger at our at at us coming our way, it's like that anger lights a match in our own anger chamber, and it can the combustion takes place. But do you know that gentleness works just the opposite? That you bring gentleness to an angry conversation, and frankly, it'll first fluster the person. Kind of like I wasn't expecting that. But then it has this calming influence much of the time 
where now you can, can have a conversation with a, a reasonable uh, reality. It wasn't worth blowing up about. Where does gentleness come from? Grace. Where does grace come from? God. How does he treat us? Gently. Much like this fifth term, patience. Gentleness and patience is our fifth grace-filled trait here that we learn from God. Patience, basically, the, in, the, in the Greek language underlying the, uh, the, the New Testament that they wrote in, it's like the word far or long with, with anger or, or angst. It's kind of like it's saying there's a, there's a delay. There's, I'm, a willing, I'm willing to put up with and, and not react. It's not like, boom, boom, the anger comes. It's, I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to get back at you. I'm not going to bring revenge. We, we find it seems like such a natural inclination to give it back to them, whatever it is. How's that working out for you? It never helps relationships. And so God calls on us as we understand his grace to put up with it a little longer, to, to, uh, to realize that there are some people in our lives that will always need grace. They may not change. And it just could be that God has placed them in that next cubicle or in our, our extended family that, you know, we're going to learn grace because of this opportunity. What if, what if God wasn't patient? What if, what if God instantly judged every sin? I mean, we'd like it if it's somebody else, but what if he instantly judged our sin? He doesn't. Grace, as we experience it, then gives us a capacity to show grace towards others who don't deserve it. So those five grace-filled traits can permeate us as we understand we are holy and we are loved and the objects of God's grace. Now, as we come to verse 13, we go from these five traits that should describe us And it's applied to two kinds of situations. The two situations are annoying, difficult people and then specific grievances or offenses. Notice this in verse 13. Bear with each other. That's putting up with annoying, difficult people. Okay, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's when there are those specific offenses. The term bearing with one another is a a term originally that just describes a burden. Bearing burdens. You know, you're under the load. (laughs) Some people are a burden to some degree, right? Bear with them. All kinds of reasons people can create a burden for. Sometimes it's because you're, you're a caregiver. Sometimes it's because of certain personality traits that just are hard for you. It's a, maybe it's a family member who keeps making the same uh, mistake. But certain kinds of people can be annoying or difficult. And uh, don't poke that person next to you. They could have been thinking about you. When we are grace-filled... We are thinking not just about what is awkward or difficult in this situation, what annoys me, but we begin to think about the other person and maybe even asking this question, I wonder what they've gone through. 
sometimes those, those, those ongoing difficult people in our lives, do, do we really know what it was like for them growing up? What, what did they experience? Maybe the question even is, what, what, did, uh, what kind of mistakes have they made that they just are carrying the shame around? Sometimes it's something back there. Sometimes the reason it's difficult is because of all the present things. And, and so you, you're, you got a crabby clerk or you got that negative Nelly kind of neighbor. Then they just always come out with all this stuff. You wish you didn't have to talk to them hardly. But do you know what they're going through? What, how fearful maybe are they in this situation? Are they concerned about losing hours, losing their job, or they're impatient because of the cabin fever uh, scenario? So, can we apply the compassion and the gentleness and the patience now to difficult people? The second phrase of verse 13, though, digs deeper. What if somebody really did mean to hurt us? What if we were truly offended And we feel like we can lay all the blame at their feet. It says, forgive whatever grievance. It's like a complaint that you may have against one another. In other words, it may be legitimate. Your complaint, yep, they really did wrong you. The solution, the last line of verse 13 is, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Sometimes I've, I've... spoken with people who are, are carrying bitterness that goes back to some, something that happens, something done, something said, and they are clinging to it. They, it, it, it's, it might be years, it might be decades ago, but they cling tenaciously to that moment of failure in the other person. It's like, it's like exhibit A of the clinching argument that proves that I, I can validate my bitterness. Who wins when you hang on to that bitterness? What does it do to you? Because it surely isn't going to change the situation. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. That's a little clue in the New Testament. One another or each other indicates that it's, the scenario is mostly each other fellow believers. I think that's when it's particularly difficult because we have high expectations of one another. And in one sense, it's valid because if, if the other person's a believer, I mean, they, they should know better. They, they, you know, they've received the grace of God too. And yet, do we have this awareness that if we expect perfection in anybody, we're always going to be disappointed because even the fellow believer is someone who is a a, a sinner in progress, this process of sanctification. So what do you do? Peter asked a question like that one time. I don't know who or what situation he might have had in mind, but he said, it says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? It sounds like he's kind of getting fed up, right? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Uh, depending on your Bible translation right now, it might say 77 or 70 times seven. Uh, the point is kind of the same. Jesus is deliberately doing some math that puts it out of reach. In other words, forgiveness should never reach a boiling point. You're never free to just 
give up on them and retaliate. But how, Paul? How, how can we live this way? What does the text say? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Remember what we're learning today in this passage is that if we grasp God's grace for us, we can give God's grace to others. And never is that more true than the, the issue of forgiving someone who has hurt us. We have to start not with what has been done to us, the offense, but start by going back to the cross and what has been done for us by the grace of God. The word forgave is in the past tense. So he's referring to how through Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, God has already completely forgiven you. Past sins, present sins, future sins you haven't invented yet. Sins that you've tried to hide, sins you've tried to defend, sins that you try to minimize, it's all covered by the cross. And when you understand that, because you have placed your faith once for all in the finished work of Christ on the cross, paid for my sins, rose again, offered me eternal life, I put my faith in him, I have forgiveness. When that permeates us, we can learn to forgive. We can pass on forgiveness to others so that when when your husband does that thing again, forgive. Your mom makes one of those comments again. Forgive. That person in the church family that you kind of wish went to a different church or maybe that you're in the church you're in because you left a church that had a person. Forgive. The reason we don't forgive is because we have not embraced fully, appropriated the, 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 the relational forgiveness that God has already provided for us. I'd like to walk you through a diagram that kind of gives us a process to think through as believers in Christ when it comes to forgiving someone who has hurt us. This diagram comes from a victorious Christian living organization. Uh, they have a series of seven books called the Seven Areas of Life Training or the Salt Books. This is from book three. It describes this bitterness that we carry as the prison of unforgiveness. Prison of unforgiveness. Because really, as we've said, we're the ones that are hurting. So here's kind of how, how the process works. We remember, these are pictured as four bars on a prison uh, cell. We, we envision the offense. This is what the person did, and we're hanging on to that. And then we realize that ever since that offense, all these other emotions have flooded over us and so we have the hurt that that has caused us and then we can even go further and we we see the domino effect what they did caused this and now you know, i'm worse off financially or this circumstance could have been different it may all be true but there's one more bar on this prison cell and that is my own sinful reactions to it because in this process of holding bitterness i myself have sinned how does this passage, this promise that we can forgive as the Lord forgave us, how does that apply? Well, as we're struggling with unforgiveness, think of the cross. Think of how, what it says here, how God forgave you. And he not only forgave you, when he died on the cross, his, his sacrifice was 
sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. So here's how it works. As you're seeking to forgive, what you're doing is you are choosing to accept the blood of Jesus as full payment for what my offender did. And it really doesn't matter whether or not they are sufficiently apologizing. What matters is you are so focused on the cross that you realize this person's sin is paid for too. You want them to experience what you have experienced. And now you can begin to think spiritually and logically that you know, I'm going to forgive that offense. I'm going to forgive the hurt it's caused me. I'm going to forgive the way it's affected my life. But now here's a crucial component. I must also repent and acknowledge, confess my own sinful reactions. And this combination of being absorbed in the grace of God and his forgiveness for us, applying that to the person who's offended us, repenting of our own sinful reactions, you know what that does? It takes down those bars, and now we are free from the bitterness. Emotions might take a little longer, You're going to have to probably review this process, this verse, over and over, but this truth will stand the test. An unforgiving spirit is, if you hang on to it, it's like a virus, frankly. Because when you're walking around with bitterness, it begins to affect these other relationships and and they're they're, they're realizing this guy's got a chip on his shoulder and and so now they get a little bit annoyed by that and and the next person they talk to, they they end up getting annoyed and that person goes home and, I don't know, maybe kicks the dog and now the whole family's mad at him. It, It spreads, doesn't it? The only solution, the only way that is stopped is by grace. And when we begin to dispense grace to others, there's a calm that comes over those relationships. If we grasp God's grace, we can show God's grace. There's one more verse here. And uh, what it really does is it addresses a prevention. Prevention is always even better than a cure. Verse 14. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. Depending on your Bible translation, it it is translated a little bit differently, but we get the point. If you can put this under an umbrella, the umbrella is love, and this, this term, this New Testament term for love that describes the love of God for us when he sent Christ to the cross is a self-sacrificing love. When when we are self-sacrificing, it means we are putting the interest of the other person ahead of our own. And he's gone back to the clothing metaphor. Above all these things, put on love. So it's like an attitude that like, like tomorrow morning when you put on new clothes or just get up and put on your daytime PJs if you're working at home. It's like you need to visually or, 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 or mentally say, I need to approach this day in a self-sacrificial way that I'm going to put the interests of others ahead of myself because that's exactly what God did for us. Christ was in heaven in a perfect environment, the eternal son of God, and he put our interests ahead of his. And he came to earth and said, I will bear the punishment of sin because I'm the only one who could do that. And he bore the punishment for sin and then he offered us eternal life if we put our trust in him. So he's done that. And if we grasp that, not only are we now 
secure in our own eternal salvation, but we now can become dispensers of grace. And so we can create a new mindset in which as we deal with people, difficult people, people we love the most, our best friends, everybody, this is grace in every circumstance. We ask ourselves, what's the most loving thing to do? Sometimes the most loving thing to do is say, we've got to talk about this. This is, this is a conflict between us. That's the most loving thing to do. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is say, this is something, love covers a multitude of sins. This is one I can just pass over. Frankly, most of it is. But we are beginning to become that dispenser of grace. As we face this unique time of concern, and isolation, relationships don't stop. Just as we seek through a worship service like this to continue relationships and through different messaging and so forth, we need to keep supporting one another. You know, our actual relationships are going to continue. And, and someday when we're you know, a little more free to get together with people, some of these things will, will, will come up again. Maybe God has given us this little window of time where we can be just with maybe the people we know the best and that know us the best, our family, so that we can pause and reflect and become grace-filled so that we can be gracious, giving people kindness they don't deserve. Whether they change or not, maybe God is in the process of changing us. Right outside my office is one of those big bottles of hand sanitizer. It says right on there, kills 99.99% of germs. I guess they couldn't claim complete. By his grace, God provided Jesus Christ, which covers 100% of our sin. If you put your faith in him, you will have eternal life. Your Your record in heaven, your eternal status will be holy. Meanwhile, though, on this earth, we're still going to be struggling. We are sinners in progress, growing to be more like Christ. But we need to start with something that is a standard that is perfectly holy, germ-free. And we can begin to dispense that to others. So we've had this study in... Realizing Paul is writing from this, this, this time of imprisonment, house arrest, filled with joy. Why? Because he was a recipient of the grace of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you showed us grace in our lost and sinful condition. In spite of all that we had done personally, in spite of all the sin of anyone in the entire history of the world and the horribleness of things that have been or will be done. You so loved the world that you gave your only son, Jesus, who took our punishment on the cross, so that if we believe in him, we will have eternal life. So thank you for that grace. And I pray that as as a church family or, or, or anyone that has placed their faith in Christ, that we would not only be receivers of grace, but generous in giving it to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.